Welcome to Tuesdays with Andrea. It's the inspiration station for everyday people guiding humanity forward. I'm your host, Andrea Rios McMillan, and every week I pursue conversations that matter with people who can relate to the common struggles we all face. You'll get to know the person behind the profession and find commonality with people of all ages, cultures, and backgrounds. Listen as friends, neighbors, and coworkers offer meaningful, personal explorations of modern life and the values we hold dear, all for the purpose of strengthening and uplifting others. So today we have Tony Kokolch. He is a counselor that our family uses and has been very instrumental in helping us navigate through tough times and process important decisions. Tony, thank you so much for joining. Yeah, thanks for having me. Appreciate it. Yeah, so I have questions. With everything going on right now, we're kind of navigating three crises right now. We have the COVID-19 pandemic and its resurgence, um, but then we also have the Black Lives Matter and social justice initiatives. And then the third is the economic crisis, um, the fallback from COVID-19, and people are losing jobs, people are losing income, and the certainty of the future is just not there right now. We don't know what's going to happen. I'm interested in, in learning more about what you can um, share with us about what you're seeing in your field. I mean, I, I definitely, I would say, gosh, it's just been seeing so many new, different, you know, new aspects just because of everything you just talked about. And I think what really hit a lot of people the hardest was the anxiety and the stress and depression for a lot of individuals, you know, was just increasing. And so just as we're about to turn the corner, you know, with, with opening that weekend up, you know, is when, you know, everything happened, you know, with the George Floyd, the social injustice and the Black Lives Matter. And so it was like just when individuals were getting a little bit more confidence to go back out there again, then in comes now this other crisis. Mm -hmm. And so it was like a, a major, you know, you know, setback for a lot of individuals um, that were really looking forward to having starting some sense of normalcy for their families, you know, for their kids. It, it just took it to a whole different level. So just as yeah. we as mental health providers were at getting good strategies and ways to help people kind of get ramped up to getting back out there again, now we have to get back and, and readjust and figure how to talk about now these new issues that are coming up. Did it feel like a, almost a deflation for you as a mental health provider? Like, okay, the bubble's here and, you know, we're almost, and then all of a sudden, boom, somebody popped the bubble again. How do you deal with that as the person that we go to? There's a saying that goes, you can do the time or you can let the time do you. And so I took it apart for me to really set up a schedule to try to create some sense of normalcy, making sure that I would incorporate working out, making sure that I could incorporate, you know, managing time with family and everything else because in the beginning I knew it was going to be a couple of months at least. So I tried different ways to adjust to it, especially from a time management standpoint because mm -hmm. everybody's time was all over the place. You know, yeah. Kids before going to bed at nine and now they're going to bed at two in the morning. <laughs> yes. And I, work has not stopped actually because everything is online. <laughs> Correct. I felt bad for, for a lot of clients that I was working with. Teachers, you know, for example, that was a big one. But the teachers that I was working with had to adjust and learn all these new things, the, the Zoom meetings. And oh, by the way, at the same time that they're managing and trying to create new curriculum that's never existed before. Now they also have to go ahead and make sure that their kids are being taught as well. So I think that was the same thing for some of those teachers that here they were getting done with the school year. Mm -hmm. And all right, a little bit of relief. And then here we go. There's now these new crises that comes up. And I mean, I actually had a conversation with a client late last week, an African-American client of mine. And she goes, you know, she's not one to really post things on Facebook and she's not really an outspoken person. But what hurt her the most was what she had pointed out to me was kind of eye-opening was, gosh, you know, I have all these friends, you know, they post stuff to me on Facebook. They, you know, ask how my family's doing, how my kids are. But when this happened, uh, with George Floyd and Black Lives Matter, it was like radio silence and felt very hurt by mm -hmm. a lack of uh, friends of hers, regardless of color, but especially some of her white friends that didn't reach out just to see what's going on, just to connect. And she was really hurt by that. So these are just things that in, in as much as I try to in, uh, 
help clients. <laughs> you know, a lot of times they're educating me as well. Yeah. I'm learning different aspects as well. It's a, it's, it's a two-way street, definitely. Do you find that it's harder now to have these discussions with clients? When you're talking about coming in as a family, coming in and seeing me and feeling comfortable and you feeling comfortable and John feeling comfortable and connecting, I think that's the best way that we're able to broach some of those barriers and those stigmas. Because when it comes down to it, for me personally, and I think this is the way my clients are, I want help. Mm-hmm. And if you can help me, I don't care what your race is. I don't care what your religion is. I don't care uh, about any of that. If you are a genuine person and I feel like you genuinely care, that's really the thing that matters most to me because I do care. I have I've been married going on 15 uh, years now in a, in a couple months and I've got two kids, my daughter 13, Peyton, and Reed, you know, nine. So I care a lot about families and kids. Yeah. And so I'm able to connect with a lot of different ranges and uh, you know, diversity in, in culture and background. Um, so tell me about your path towards becoming a counselor. Did you always know you want to be a counselor? I was always good at, it seemed like people were drawn to me to like, to talk to me about things. Uh-huh. Um, I can especially, you know, remember like I went into like junior high, you know, even in high school, like girls would come to me with their problems or issues. You, you know, were the buddy, listener. I was the listener. I think uh-huh. there's something about somebody that's empathetic. Like uh-huh. I didn't have this level of insight then, but when you have that level of empathy, I think other people are like drawn to it. And I think even more so in today's day and age where everybody's like so self-centric, you know, and egotistical and they're kind of so into themselves yeah. that when they're, when they're having problems, individuals like myself and so many other people that work with me in my profession, it's like, they're just like a moth to a flame. Uh, so I think I think they that, that they do they find you you have that face I, of like and right. you have that face Andrea you have the face like oh my gosh like I think you would I would totally talk to you about my problems and issues you would listen to me yeah yeah like well <laughs> when I have a problem I look for people who might know an answer that's really what this podcast is about and how do we share more of those people with the world um, because it helps and I know firsthand it helps um, and I think cycle like mental health and focusing on the stories that we tell ourselves and the ways that we can change our outcomes simply by looking at a different perspective or even being educated on minor things like like the process of grief right if I didn't know the process of grief I would have thought I was crazy or my husband was crazy learning about grief cycles and stages and but those are simple things that aren't taught in school. Uh, they're not taught in work. It's kind of like you, a free-for-all unless you have experience of someone who's really well-coped and well-adjusted and highly you know, motivated and successful. That's, I think, what we have to do is seek out those people who show glimmers of hope and, and, a, and a better path. Yeah, and I think that's also probably the way I'm able to connect too because, I mean, I have worked for everything you know, to get to this point. My parents were kids, you know, when they had me, they were in high school, just getting out of high school. They both worked. My grandparents raised me during the day while they were working and, you know, grew up on the east side of Joliet. So definitely had no levels of entitlement, you know, at all. And uh, haven't, haven't been the, you know, the, the strongest or the tallest. So there's always been like this proverbial like chip on my shoulder. Um, Did you have siblings? I had uh, one brother. He's younger. He's uh, eight years younger than me. So it's a bit okay, of a... So- you're the older, there. okay. So, were you the oldest though? Is that yes. you are the oldest? Yes. I so, did oldest. you get it harder? Were you kind of the quintessential older child in that way? Oh, definitely. Yeah, absolutely. I think I can see the tears of like how my dad, you know, <laughs> raised me to my brother to like to my kids. Uh-huh. So it's like totally different, different. different variations of yeah of evolution. Definitely. Growing up, did you have a good relationship with your family though? You know, we had struggles, definitely. It was easy for me once I got my own counseling myself to understand, you know, that dynamic. Being that they're younger parents, of course, you know, they made mistakes. My dad didn't always have, to have the, uh, the, the best temperament in the world. And so, you know, it grew up in a very difficult household, you know, at times, um, you know, both physically and emotionally. But at the same time, like that's, and you hear this all the time and you hate to make this an excuse, but I mean, they were doing the best with what they had doesn't mean that it was like good. It's kind of yeah, like when I tell clients, hey, good all the hey, time. Yeah. hey, hey, just because you accept something doesn't mean you like it. 
definitely those components there, you know, had me face some anxiety issues and depression issues. That also is something that is very helpful to, especially like my adolescent clients, when I can share with them, yeah, I've had those struggles before. Definitely my anxiety is like probably was, was my number one issue. My mind is always racing around to this date. So to be able to, you know, share what that feels like, it's hard to relate, you know. So if I have a client that they're opening up and talking about having like a panic attack, you know, I'll I'll share with them. Yes, uh, I get it. The heart feels like it's going to pop out of your chest. You're you're all tense. You know, your neck is all tensed up. You're raring to go. You're, you're upset stomach. You're yeah. hyperactive. You're sweating. Uh, so I get it. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so I think by the upbringing that I had, and at times I wish that some of those things didn't happen. But ultimately, if I didn't have those experiences, then I wouldn't have had those types of feelings of depression, of anxiety, and therefore wouldn't be able to empathize and relate to the clients I work with today. So yeah. sometimes the sweet ain't sweet without the bitter. So that's, uh, that's how I try to, to look at it. Look at now, like look at me, we're having a, a podcast talking about like mental health mm-hmm. and communication and family systems and all of us being open about our own stuff and therapy and all that, that wasn't happening. No. (laughs) You know, when we were growing up, like with our parents, our parents weren't exposed to that. They didn't have any of those tools whatsoever. Mm -hmm. Um, And then likewise, we have to figure out how we can help the next generation when I'm still trying to figure out how to stay afloat, right? I think that's the thing is it's that, you know, so many times we get involved with this like you know, gosh, look at these Facebook families. They have it all together. And it's so like, perfect. well, that's not real. That's no. not real. So, I mean, just last night I'm talking to a couple about communication issues me and my wife had over the weekend where just expressing to them, here's where it could have fell off the rails into an argument or disagreement, but we're able to pull it back and really resolve it. So using personal experiences because, because that's real, that's reality. Even though I'm a counselor and my wife Lee is, you know, well-educated, you know, she has her master's in education. We all have issues. We all have problems. It's active. It's fluid. And just when we think we got it all figured out, we don't. (laughs) What does your wife say dealing with a counselor for a husband? Is that hard for her? Do you ever ever analyze her? My mind's always analyzing all the time, but, you know. (laughs) But, but I made it a point, like I knew I needed somebody that was going to challenge me. I knew that somebody needed somebody that didn't need me. So when I met my wife, she was more educated. She was, you know, teaching in Blue Island, doing really well for herself. She was independent. Mm-hmm. And like begrudgingly, I was really attracted to her. But I also knew like, oh my gosh, like this is somebody that's not going to put up with my BS. This is a level up. This is a level up. Uh-huh. And so she always challenges me. And so because of that, that's where, yeah, there is no doing any kind of psycho analyzing or anything like that. She's going to call me out on my stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, and I always respect her for that because it, 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 it challenges me and, pre- and it prevents me from not owning and being accountable for some of the things I, I, I need to be accountable for. And sometimes we're going to throw a zinger out. That's what happened to me on, on Saturday. It was like throwing something out that like, you know, initially you want that back, but then what's the recovery process going to be? Yeah. What is it? How quickly can I, how quickly (laughs) can I like recognize I shouldn't have done that or shouldn't have said that and then get into that conversation, you know, get into that repair. That's where we fail a lot of times as couples, because instead of putting out like a really, really, really small fire, we, we, we avoid it. Mm -hmm. We avoid it. And then the resentment starts to build up. Yeah. And that's what the difference is of, you know, maybe it ruins an hour or so, but it doesn't ruin the night. Mm-hmm. It doesn't ruin the weekend. When we can communicate with our partner and have some resolution to these things as they come across us, that's, you know, what marriage is. Because marriage is like a business, like a restaurant. Everything's constantly changing. Like you can't get lazy. Right. You always have to have constant communication. So how do you go about understanding people's personality styles and the way that they deal with conflict in a way that gets somewhere. I think that's very hard. It's always communication, you know, and so I always implement one of the theories that we use is, uh, you know, Gottman, and he talks about like the four horsemen of the apocalypse. Yeah. uh, Can you explain that? Yeah. So, you know, perception is reality. 
So how I perceive things, how you perceive things may be totally different, but it's our reality. So if I'm saying something that, you know, you perceive it, that I'm being very critical, whether it, maybe it's my tone of voice or the subject matter, like whatever the case might be, you receive it as, as criticism. Hopefully I'll be aware of that by body language, but you know, if not, I need to learn that because mm-hmm. I need to learn how to change that. Because if I don't change that, then when we're critical to somebody else, oftentimes gloves, gloves are off, they're going to get defensive. They're going to become defensive. And this is what happens a lot of times in arguments with couples. Mm-hmm. You say something, you say the wrong words, and here comes a rebuttal. And then here the gloves come off. And yep. It never stays on topic. And, and then, then you're bringing up stuff that happened last week or yeah. two years ago. You're bringing it up, throwing <laughs> it in, a, using whatever you can do. Yeah, and, it's, and it becomes a huge mess. And then what happens over time, like with that type of dynamic, communication wise is then, well, instead of, you know, having, yes, please tell me all the ways my communication styles are unhealthy. (laughs) So then then after a while, it's like a self-preservation thing and phones like are a good example of it now. So, you know, I could be looking at my phone and you're yelling at me or arguing with me and I'm not, you know, I'm hearing and listening to you, but I'm I'm using this as an avoidance method Yeah, uh, because that way I could just get out of this situation maybe quicker so that the argument doesn't have to be 30 minutes long. It's only five minutes long. You know, that's, that's a concept of avoidance, stonewalling, which often is human nature. Yeah. We're not going to get any re- resolution. Why get into these heated battles back and forth? That's really where the red flags are in a relationship of any kind, because when it reaches that point, when we're doing that avoidance, either physically avoiding or looking at our phones, being at the same couch, but different devices. Yeah. Then that's where the resentment starts to come into place. Mm. And that resentment is over just like little things. It's kind of like the sands in the hourglass, okay? And I'm not talking about days of our lives. Right. So it, uh-huh. it, it adds up. It adds up over time. And, and that resentment then becomes toxic within a relationship. Mm-hmm. Because then at that point, we're not willing to give on anything. No, because at that point, I've already built up a scenario in my mind that you are against me. You do not care. This is where the resentment, I think, it changes. I Maybe hardens the heart is the better word uh, or hardens mm-hmm. the mind, but uh, allows no other thought to come in that goes against what I've already decided. Yeah, absolutely. And not only do I use this as an example in marriage counseling, but it's communication within the family. Because a lot of times, and I have to be mindful of this as well, you know, my daughter who's 13 and, you know, things that I might, might say to her that used to just roll off her back, but you know, now she's having her own opinions on things. Now she's, you know, watching a lot of different stuff. She's educated on a lot of different things. And so I got to keep in mind, okay, different things that I might say that she might be sensitive to Mm -hmm. and, and how to approach that. And sometimes as parents, we feel like, well, I don't need to do that. You know, it kind of goes yeah. back to maybe some of the ways that we were raised. Like, no, mm-hmm. this is the way, the way it is. And so you're going to believe what I believe mm-hmm. uh, and, and, and try to shove my opinion onto hers mm-hmm. instead of taking a step back. And it's like, Hey, you know what? I got, I got to do the same thing that I do for my wife as I do for my kids. It could be no different. You know, you have to modify how you approach things because every kid is different. Mm-hmm. You know, I always, my, my, my daughter came out and she was, anxious to the core when we'd we'd get her to sleep and we'd put her down in bed like mission impossible and if there was any kind of like hesitation she'd ramp up and there goes another 20 30 minutes of the night is that a sign of anxiousness for children temperament is something that we're born with that's why many times as much as we put these labels on things we're quick to be like okay they're anxiety they're this they're that yeah I had a professor, my good mentor, my doctor at Kearney, and he told me, Tony, you'll get this when you have two kids or more than two. Temperament from birth. You can just see the differences in their personality styles, uh, how they adapt to things, you know, how they react to things. And so that's to be true, like I said, with my daughter and, uh, you know, her nervousness or anxiety. That's been there from the get-go. We had to, like, bounce her around from one thing to another. Fast forward to my son, Reed. And we nicknamed him Simple Man. It was one of his nicknames because you'd almost forget him. He'd be the kid like when so when you hear some of these stories sometimes like mom mom or dad forgets like you know kid. Yeah, they forgot me. 
Did you forget him? He was so chill. No, we never, we didn't leave him. We didn't leave him. Oh, did you ever leave him at the store? But, but He's going to bring that up if that happens. No, didn't happen. <laughs> um, that, that was, there was no new story on any kind of patch of any kind. He would, he would be so chill, like, you know, wherever he was relaxing at that we would like, we would be like, oh, he's in the, where's Reed at? Oh, he's in the living room, you know, because yeah. he would be just so chill, so relaxed. And that translates into his personality now. Like I could give him like a $5 bill and tell him to go up to the restaurant bar and ask for a Coke and he would do it. Yeah. Like, and, I, and if I were to do that to my daughter, I could say, here's a hundred dollars. And she wouldn't ask, do it. Ask, ask for a Coke and keep the change. And she said, I'm good. <laughs> is that personality, is, is there also like a shyness factor to that? Or is there a part of that that is more learned behavior? I think there's a combination of both. I think that's nature via nurture. So, you know, I think going back to, I can obviously, you know, relate more with my daughter in this extent because I kind of, I was that. Yeah. Like I can remember being nervous and anxious in, in situations. And so I, I think being able to talk about it with her was, you know, definitely something that I didn't have. So kind of expressing her or explaining to her or trying to push her out of her comfort zone, yeah, you know, like coaching in certain her. situations. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. Like that, that helps getting her in line with like, so she wanted to do cheerleading. And so I knew that she needed a coach that could be warm and fuzzy, knew when to back off, but then knew when to push, but needed to earn her trust. So she felt comfortable. And luckily, I, I found you found the great, perfect cheerleader. Great coach, <laughs> great great coach. She's phenomenal. You know, and did private lessons with her, and she was she was like the, the tumbling whisperer, uh, because not only did she get my daughter to have like basically very minimal skill set to being able to compete on a cheerleading team this past year, they got fourth in the state out of nineteen teams, but to her confidence level, she helped boost her confidence level by the like you said the coaching to her personality style, to her temperament. That's what we have to do, you know, with our kids, which makes it tougher. It makes it much more difficult because when we grew up, it was, here's the rules. Doesn't matter what your temperament is or what your personality style is. This is the way it's going to be for everybody. We're not Mm going to adapt. We're not catering to anyone. Yeah. It's my way. Okay. So here's the other question I was going to ask you. Is that a generational thing? Is that generational thinking of we're not going to cater the child is that changed forever? Generationally, we've gone from one spectrum to the other. So we've went from authoritarian, which was the my way or the highway. And, you know, there was more corporal punishment. And yes, there was definitely a lot of things that were extreme. And then we went from that to, I think, our generation, because a large part of us were exposed to that, to more of the like permissive type parenting. You know, even the permissiveness in the schools or the permissiveness in sports, so what does that do? How has that changed this generation of students? Like, what have you seen from, you're the one who sees these high school I think, students in and out? I think, unfortunately, what that's caused, even though the intent was good, like mm-hmm. to, to give them kind of the warm and fuzzies, but kind of what we were doing was like overcompensating for what we didn't have. And I right. think what that did was, is, is it decreased the resiliency in a lot of kids. Yeah. So one of the main things I encourage parents now, especially for their younger kids, is let them fail let them struggle in certain situations that we have some control over because that helps build that resiliency. Um, And I've always been honest and direct with my kids, sometimes maybe too honest, but you know, I've always told them, even with my son who's in baseball right now on a traveling team, you know, he's got tryouts coming up next week. And I said, Hey, listen, nothing's guaranteed. So is is he still practicing right now? He is. Yes. They're, yeah, they're practicing. Um, He actually, they had um, a tournament just this past weekend in Iowa. So, uh, which that was like a breath of fresh air because yeah. their restrictions are limited. It was so normal again. Maybe it's normal. And we're outside. Yeah. Everybody's outside. Okay. We're being, you know, safe. Yeah. These are families that all know each other. But uh, yeah, I guess so I told him, hey, you know, tryouts for next week for the upcoming season. Nothing's guaranteed. And if you're not good enough, you won't make it. Right. And, and, and that doesn't mean that you have to quit baseball. But that means you have to try harder if you really yeah. want it. That means you have to get uh, off the video game. <laughs> absolutely. Yes. Taking those moments to push our kids. There's, there's times where we need to back off. There's times where we need to stroke. There's times where we need to just slap. And 
you know, I know that's hard for parents because, you know, they want their kids to succeed and thrive, but if they don't suffer a little bit. Yeah. And, and that's where, I, that's, that's where I let go of a, a lot of that resentment I did have, you know, when I went through counseling that I had towards my parents, but my dad in particular, because my counselor blew my mind and basically pointed it out to me. You don't have those experiences and then you don't have this level of empathy and you can't connect. So a gift that you have came from struggles that maybe at times when things were happening that I played the victim role, but then after getting through it, persevering through it and recognizing good can come out of that. Mm. So by no means am I saying, Hey, let's go back to like beating our kids. No, no, but needing to push them so that they can build up that level of resiliency. Yeah. And what I think the beautiful thing about what you're saying. So when our family went in, it was a hard time. We, as parents, and we're also young parents, we don't know what the heck we're doing. We don't uh, have a lot of strong marriages and experience of people staying married in our family. I grew up with a single mom. He grew up with a single mom. Our dads were gone. We both, at some point, not sure what we're, how we're going to make it in this world. And you have another kid and then three boys. And we have such different parenting styles. So when we were, were working with you, what it allowed me to do was understand how to uh, relate in a different way with my husband and how to understand him better, but then also how to understand his priority with our son, like true and trusting that intention, the value of having other people who understand what you're going through is essential right now. What are some things that we should be mindful of as parents? I think the biggest thing that I can recommend is is the need to stay present. Information and everything is so like fluidly changing day by day, week by week, and especially in relationship to COVID, kids reentering school, how school is going to look. And I think to look at it too in depth now, it will give parents and kids like anxiety, you know, whether it's going to elementary school, uh, going to college, because I think there's still so many things that are kind of up in the air. So I don't want to go ahead and and tell my kid the CDC guidelines right now of, hey, you're going to have to like be in uh, every other day going to school and you're going to have to go into like a a bus and sit two feet away or six feet away from somebody. And then you have to have uh, masks on all day and you can't eat lunch with your friends I don't even want to go there until I have to go there. Yeah. So it's like worry about something when there's something to worry about. So if and when those times come, then we can have those conversations then. So it's not adding way too much stress onto them. Yeah. Okay. So for your 13-year-old, even yeah. your, your your son, have they have you noticed any change or impact on their life through this? Anything that you're concerned about right now as a dad? One thing that I, I did throughout this process, I mean, and my wife did as well, is we always made sure that we were really touching base with them on a consistent basis, especially my daughter at 13, because she was one that was looking forward to competing for a state opportunity, you know, in track. And that season went away. You know, she had good friends of hers wow. that were, were supposed to go to state for wrestling. And uh, that same week that everything shut down she was, you know, much more affected and impacted by it. She's, she's the social butterfly and between yeah. that and sports, it was really, it hit her, you know, really hard. Mm-hmm. So it was making it a point to, you know, try to keep people safe at the beginning and do what we we're supposed to do in terms of quarantining, which we did strictly. And then in making sure she had those outlets through, you know, talking to her friends through, you know, online or through Snapchat or whatever, you know, whatever we could possibly do. And sometimes maybe it was a little bit, uh, over of what we would normally do, but we were trying to take that in consideration with everything. You know, she right. doesn't have the school as an outlet. Social isolation is not a good thing for anyone. Yeah. Um, you know, that's the whole mental health component of it because nobody wants to talk about that. As far as numbers go, that's a, yeah. that's a whole different podcast, Andrea. Social um, isolation. Yes. And depression and anxiety and, and individuals that didn't even experience levels of anxiety and depression that are all time levels and highs you know, right now. Oh, I'd love to do a follow-up on this. Absolutely. There's all these different phobias. I just talked to a woman today who uh, she's been in her apartment in Chicago. She works out there. She's not really stepped out pretty much at all 
uh, throughout this whole process because of how much the fears uh, have impacted you know mm-hmm. her still you know works from home and gets but gets groceries everything done right and I, that makes me wonder what kind of effect this is going to have on us as a whole going forward right when well it's i think it's when we can we need to be safely getting out there and socializing and uh, being there with friends being there with family being in there and like i said safe gatherings um, because we need that social component we need that social connection you know, and I think I've seen too many people even get reliant on Zoom meetings and, oh, this is what I'll do forever. And it's like, well, that's not, that's not a healthy thing, mm-hmm. you know, especially for people, I mean, like myself, I mean, like you, my wife, we're all family orientated. We want to be with family. We want to be connected. Yeah. You know, I, I don't want to give uh, somebody a, a, a hug through plexiglass. Right. And I'm not saying that means being irresponsible, no. but Definitely yes. Like it's 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 seeing the, those secondary effects that nobody is talking about, nobody's really discussing a whole lot of what I'm seeing, you know, on a day to day basis. But because of all that, going back to you know your point with my kids, that's where you know we made sure that we were touching base on her mental health and being direct and asking those questions. I can't mm-hmm. stress that enough to parents. You know, hey, are you feeling depressed? Are you feeling okay? Are you are you sad? Are you upset about something? Do you, do you need somebody to talk to? Do you want to talk to your mom and not talk to me about it? it? You know, that's the whole misconception where I don't want to ask my kid if they're depressed because maybe I'm like, then going to get that in their head. No. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it, it, I, I know that that like even the suicide, when, when the suicide uh, conversations were heavy and there's a lot of kids who commit suicide more so nowadays than, than I, I was used to growing up. And it was a hard conversation because you don't want to plant the seed. In my mind, I don't want to plant the seed, but then at the same time, I want, I'd rather him be informed about what's going on than not. And I feel like he's already hearing it from other people. I want to at least offer my perspective to him on the, the subject matter. And then sometimes they don't want to hear it either. No. And to that point too, that's why I tell parents, be involved not just with your kids, but what their kids are watching, what their social media is, creeping on them if necessary, because, you know, you you have to. I know some parents are sometimes uncomfortable with it, and they say, well, I want to give them privacy. I was going to ask, what's your stance on privacy for teenagers? (laughs) Well, I mean, I've got a 13-year-old daughter, okay, that when her and my wife went swimsuit shopping a few weeks back, and they came back and, you know, she showed me some of the swimsuits she got. I, I asked my wife, like, where's all the material? Like, uh-huh. where's the rest of it? <laughs> What's going she on was like, here? But it's fashion. It's cute. And even though the pools are closed. Yes. Well, we, we do have a pool, uh, you know, in our backyard. Is she, yours she, she, open? She, oh, it is. Nice. She, she, she was getting primed and ready for that. But yeah. to that point, like, I can't close my eyes and think to myself, well, you know what? I'm sure that, you know, nobody is, is trying to you know talk to her or message her you know she's a teenage girl now so you know if i'm going to allow her to have certain applications like instagram or you know TikTok or anything like that then i have to be or my and or my wife has to monitor those things mm-hmm. we got to monitor the content of what they're putting out there because first and foremost like i told her you know what you put out there is going to be a representative of who you are not just you know now but down the road, because if you put something that's offensive, you know, if you put something that is, is constituted as racist or whatever the case might be, even though it wasn't directly done, because that's the thing right. with TikToks, right? They're dances. Okay, everybody's doing these dances. But then if you hear some of the music being played in the background with these dances, maybe yeah. you're dancing, you're not saying the lyrics and you're not speaking but it, you're perpetuating. but you're associated with it. Yeah. Exactly. And trying to educate, you know, her and, and on, on those types of things, or if you're a part of, you know, some type of group chat, and even though you're not the one that's saying bad stuff about somebody, you got to be away from that group chat because that's a part of bullying. Mm-hmm. Just because you're not being a part of that conversation, you're a part of that group. You need to get out of it. So and I'm online bullying for kid for teens right now. I mean, that is their only social interaction right now is online mm-hmm. for most teenagers. How do you deal with that? What is the advice for dealing with the social media, you know, the constant consumption and, and, you know, everything else that is accessible via online at 
you know, kids' fingertips because every kid has a phone now. Yeah, I mean, I think the, the number one, going back to the privacy point, I think the monitoring thing is the biggest thing. Parents, you know, need to be able to monitor, have access, you know, whether their LinkedIn is friends, know their passwords, because that doesn't mean you, you have to constantly 100% be checking it. But for example, like if I felt like, you know, there was something off with my kid mood wise, right? Because we should be able to read our kids pretty well. Mm-hmm. That's probably a moment where I'm definitely engaged, you know, engaging with, with her or engaging with him, trying to talk, see what's going on. But then I probably would be maybe searching for things, looking for things, just mm-hmm. to see if there isn't something underlying. So by no means am I saying I, I need to police my kids 24-7, but definitely being able to stay engaged because to your point, like the social media uh, you know, aspect of the cyberbullying is just horrible. It's horrible. And, and so not only do I look out for it for my daughter, but I like I encourage and advocate for her. If you see this stuff, you know, whether it's with friends or people you know, please come to me and talk to me about it or your mom. So we can make sure that if it's something really bad that we can try to help, you know, that friend or try to reach out to that parent, you know, to let them know what's going on. It seems nowadays, it seems that there's way more division and way more resentment. How do we deal with, even with people we thought we loved or knew or respected, what are those ways to overcome those difficult divides? So with these big, big, big topics, uh, you know, you do not text these things. You don't Instagram, you don't Snapchat these things. You don't Facebook these things. You pick up a phone or you go face to face and you have a conversation. Mm-hmm. Because individuals are, are less likely to be that confrontational or visceral, you know, the same things that they post online. There's no way they're going to do it. Right. It, it, it verbally talking to us face to face. And that's the way that we can start having some, some, some of those conversations that, yes, that can be difficult, but we can have them face to face and get that person's perspective on it. Mm-hmm. And, and so for those that have asked throughout this process, you know, those that felt the need, like, I feel like I need to do something. Or yeah. I feel like I need to say something. I would say it starts in your own backyard. And what do you mean? It starts in your own backyard. What do you mean by that? Uh, what I mean by that is, you know, take a look at yourself. Number one, take a look at your family. You know, like I talked to somebody yesterday. If you can look in the mirror and say, gosh, you know, I nailed it hundred percent today as a father, as a husband, like rock that out. Perfection. Okay, then maybe you're at a point where you can start judging. I think that we need to look at self-improvement, what we need to do in our own relationships within our own family. And when it comes to these different topics, talk to a friend and don't assume things either. Okay? Yeah. Because let's not make assumptions across the board that yeah. everybody has the same opinions yeah. or, you know, have the same responses to it. Don't mm-hmm. assume Right. And that's so hard because that's the first thing that I want to do all the time is assume. What are the questions to ask other than assume? Well, no, I think uh, for, for, you know, the clients I've talked to is just asking, you know, like, so how have you been impacted by this? How has your life changed? You know, I know we haven't gotten into this before, but I mean, have you, is this something that you have experienced before? You know, how does this trigger you? You tell me your story. You tell me how you're being impacted by it. Mm-hmm. because that's been a lot of what hasn't been happening. Nobody listens. Yeah. Nobody you know? listens. And so, and so whether we're dismissive about that and we're not listening or I'm not listening to my daughter because she's just a teenager, because she's just 13, yeah. that's when there's a breakdown. That's when there's division. And I love how you said that. You said it starts within your own home and, and not making assumptions and really looking at your own family unit. So as a mom in my family... Are, are we saying, how's your marriage? How are your kids? Has their behavior changed during or throughout this? And to be really conscious of, of how we're relating from an interpersonal level. And if not, let's focus on that first before we try to go out and save the world. Yes. Right? That's what you're saying. Right? Yes, absolutely. hundred yeah. percent. You know, when, when I can say that we're, we're up and running and we're in a good spot and everything's going on, like, that's fine. But then even when we get to that point, let's not look at saving the world. Let's see what we can do in our community. Let's see what we can do in our, you know, the areas that are around us or our friends. Instead of posting something on Facebook, why don't you pick up the phone and call? Or why don't you have that conversation, you know, with that coworker, whatever the case might be. That's where you can start. You can't yeah. start to make any type of difference 
anywhere until you understand, which is why going back to why people relate to me, because I get it. I understand. I've been through a lot. I'm more street smart than I am book smart. Uh, So I've been through those struggles. When you say like I've been through those struggles and street smart, what do you mean? Because I look at you and your, 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 your perfect life and your perfect family and you can coach your daughter and you guys are great and you have that backyard pool. How can you relate to people who maybe think you can't? Yeah, because I mean, I've had those, you know, those negative aspects and characteristics of me. Okay. I, and that's the point that I think a lot of people have a hard time getting to. They can point out all the good stuff about themselves. Like, man, I, I can listen and I'm empathetic, but there's been times where, you know, I could also be, you know, and have been, you know, cold or withdrawn or have trust issues, mm-hmm. you know, um, and, and push back. Uh, I can be overly opinionated at times. I could be, you know, arrogant at times. And now those are aspects that some might say, oh my gosh, like those are kind of negative aspects. Well, yeah, but that's how people are. Okay. We've got good characteristics, but I also know the, the negative components of it. Yeah. You know, and I think when you can be admitting to that. Yes. Have you, are you familiar with the Enneagram? And do you respect the Enneagram? No, no, go ahead. <laughs> do you know, teach are you me. familiar? No, no, teach me. So the Enneagram is this circle diagram. We did it through our work and I loved it. We just did it last year and it's similar to the. Yeah, like Myers-Briggs. Myers-Briggs. This one you have numbers and basically it breaks down the, the personality types and it's a pie shape. So you see what other people are um, and how it benefits you or hurts you. And it also talks about underlying needs. Um, And I like what you just said. And the reason why I brought that up is because it was the first time where I saw that other people who look at things completely different from me offer me so much value in a way that I would have been blinded by if I didn't see that that one circle diagram of why and how we can relate and why and how we don't relate. And it also freed me from like, you know, there's going to be a lot of people who don't like me. I am just not their type. And it helped me to recognize, oh, this is where I fit in the pie chart. And I think sometimes we tend to close off to people who don't immediately agree with us or are like us. What would you say to that? No, I, I think that that's, that's accurate. And I've been on both ends of the spectrum. So when I, when I say like struggles and things that I've been through, you know, I've been that anxious kid. I've been those periods and those struggles of being, you know, depressed, lacking confidence in myself wanting to be like in a shell, like wanting to be like the, the wallpaper, you know, in the back of the classroom, you know, so I've, I've felt that before. And so. How do you, you overcome know, it? Through therapy. I went to counseling. I serendipitously got linked in with, you know, a guy that recognized that there were some things that were, you know, struggling with me. He actually was first my, my psychology teacher and uh, helped me to like literally learn because I barely passed high school. Uh, I think they just, uh, let me graduate because my parents paid a lot of money maybe on the side uh, to get me through but I had struggles like with learning and so probably could have been diagnosed with uh, some type of learning disability like ADD it was always like the maintenance rehearsal you know flashcards all that stuff and it just, just didn't compute for me so in the class that I took when I went back to college uh, he just saw that I was right yeah. but wasn't doing well and so he pulled me aside and literally taught me a different way to learn. And uh, those strategies turned me into a straight A student. Um, what was that different way to learn? Oh, it was, it's called like elaborative rehearsal. It's a different form of learning where you take things that are already in your long-term memory and you connect them to new things that you're learning. So it may not be relatable to anybody else, but yourself. But once we have stuff in our long-term memory, it's forever stored there. So if we can take something new and just loosely connect it, which is what he did with me with um, at the time in GenPsych world for this learning thing he was doing uh, defense mechanisms. So he would have me get a piece of paper out, and he just told me to, he says I'm going to give you these uh, defense mechanisms. Just draw like what comes to mind. Uh, he brought up rationalization, and I remember drawing a picture of a spaceman because uh, with the little ration thing because my oh. parents went my parents went to uh, NASA. And I was sick at the time and couldn't go. And they brought me back space rations. 
uh, projection, I drew a projector, the uh, denial, I drew a little river, the Nile River. I thought it was completely ridiculous. And so I did all this and then I remember about a week later, he asked me to name some defense mechanisms and I was able to roll them off because I may have not known like the pure definition of it, but, but I was able to link them. it together. Yes. So it actually infuriated the mentor I was talking about earlier, Dr. Kearney. I didn't find this out until years later, but I took his child appraisal class. It was a master's level class at Lewis. It's a really, really hard class. It was like three weeks in, and uh, I found this after the fact. He had went to uh, Dr. Sheffer, who was another mentor of mine for social psychology, and she's like, you know, Susan, I got this guy, this kid in my class, and he, is, he hasn't opened up his notebook like once. He hasn't taken a note out. And he was like, I guess at the time, like ticked off. Yeah. And, and she goes, who is it? And he's like, oh, this is Tony Kokel. And, he, and he's like, oh. She's like, well, no, don't worry about it, Ed. Like, He's got it. So next class, he pulls me aside and starts like drilling me like with questions about child appraisal and I'm hammering him off. And he's like, and then I explain my story and he's like, oh, now I get it. It, what about the, the building confidence and then knowing that you are good at taking care of other people? Where did that switch happen? That was with Tom Schweitzer, who, like I said, he was my gen site teacher. And but he also did counseling there at the school as well at Joliet Junior College. He really helped to give me praise and validation about things that I never received before, you know, in that way, help me to value that those, those aspects of what I do and my empathy and my ability to care and listen, that those are really powerful tools. Those mm-hmm. are really great gifts. So he was able to really point out things that I didn't look at and see in that light before. Right. I kind of dismissed it because it was mm-hmm. kind of naturally just who I was. Right. You know, so when you're naturally like, it's kind of like maybe if you just maybe never took a cooking class, but you know, you're just naturally good in the kitchen and you can make stuff. Right. And you weren't like classically trained. Somebody might be like, well, yeah, my stuff's okay. And you're like, no, that, that's phenomenal. Like, you need, you should. Do you know chef. that you did that for me? Yes. <laughs> yes. Cause I remember we we're talking one day you asked, what do you want, Andrea? And I was so focused on, on John and John John's dynamic and being kind of middle person and you're like, you need to focus on something else. You need something else to focus on. And I'm like, well, there's work. You're like, but what do you want for yourself? And I said, well, you know, I have this idea. I, I'm thinking about a podcast and I share it with you. And you were the person who was like, you can do it. It's a great idea. You could start this year. And I didn't start it that year. It was not last year. I started, you know, this year. But that was what you played in, in my life. As an adult. <laughs> well, in, in, cause I, cause I, I could sense. So that thank you. That, well, you're welcome. All I am is a glorified GPS. Like I can give suggestions, but whether or not you follow or not, it's completely up to you. Cause the ultimate goal for the clients that I work with and see is that I don't want to see you anymore. Meaning that yeah. I want to give you the tools. Yeah, we don't want this to be a long term. <laughs> right, right. I want to give you the guidance and you know, then you can take off and run with it because if you choose to do it, then it's your choice, your decision. You did it. And that's true empowerment. You know, right. if I just told people what to do and gave deadlines on things, yeah, they might be successful, but they would lack that sense of empowerment. Mm-hmm. And so, yeah, when I saw that with you, I'm like, this is something you're passionate about. And this is something that you need to do for yourself because you're so used to innately just doing for everyone else. Yeah. But then in the process, and this is what you're learning, I'm sure of through this, these podcasts that you're doing, as I've learned through therapy, is the, the thing I get from it is I'm able to help people and I feel good about that, you know? So when people are like, oh, you know, you need to do things that are altruistic. Well, there's no really like true altruism, so to speak. You know, we're right. always we doing all do something from, because we're getting yeah, we get something, something from, from it. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. But it's in a positive way, you yeah. know? So it's a way that it's individuals achieving their goals or, you know, being pushed to do certain things that they maybe you're second guessing or wouldn't, you know, wouldn't normally do. And that was exactly what was done for me. You know, that was that same thing that was pushed for me. Like, Tony, you have a gift and you should follow it and don't listen to what anybody else has to say because just as you would have a lot of critics in terms of what you wanted to do with this podcast, I had a lot of critics with you and going to counseling. There's no money to be made there. Like, what are you going to do? You're going to be poor. What, what is it that you're going to do? You're just going to talk to people. Yeah. Ignore those loud voices. Follow your passion. That was actually one of the things that... Uh, Tom Schweitzer, you know, told me there's a, 
book by Joseph Campbell, The Power of Myth, and one of the things in there it talks about, follow your bliss in life. If you follow your bliss in life, what you're passionate about, yeah, there's going to be times where it's going to be tough, mm-hmm. you know, but that's where we get through because we know mm-hmm. that there's light at the end of the tunnel. I always give that example of like uh, the movie uh, Shawshank Redemption. Oh, I Just love kept, that movie. Yeah, dig it away, dig it away. Yeah. You know, get busy living, get busy dying. And mm-hmm. I took that and I ran with it with his encouragement. And then I made sure when I got to Lewis uh, after going to junior college that I got LinkedIn with who I know would be teachers that would challenge me. I wanted the best. You know, I wanted Dr. Helm. I wanted Kim Juris. I wanted Dr. Sheffer. I wanted Ed Kearney because I knew that they were the best. And Did you was, seek them out at yes, all? Yes, absolutely. I sought, I, I sought them out by taking their classes and then mm-hmm. just genuinely through uh, my love for psychology and for love for their classes and us having side conversations, growing those friendships, you know, outside of the classroom mm-hmm. and relied heavily on that with uh, Dr. Kearney, who at the time was the chair of the department. And this was close to, to me graduating thinking about going into the master's program. And I just said, I said, just being honest with me. And do you think I could do this? You know, do you think I could do it? And do you think I can be successful? And if so, what do I need to do? And he said, absolutely. And, you know, he spent, you know, that day an hour or so mapping out all these different steps of what I needed to do. And I just followed. Mm. So it, it's, it's the key thing. And you'd brought this up, you know, a little bit earlier, but the necessary need for us to have mentors in our life. Mm-hmm. And Dr. Helm always told me, Tony, make sure you have four or five people in your circle that are smarter than you and better than you in a mm-hmm. lot of different ways, because you'll always grow. The moment when we think we know everything mm-hmm. is when we need to quit what we're doing. Yeah. And so those people are necessary for guidance, guidance that you were talking about earlier. Mm-hmm. Are you constantly, even now as a, as in your position, and you've already had that, their experiences as, as mentors and teachers, how do you continue to grow yourself now? Do you find other voices that you now respect and then seek them out as mentors, even in this virtual world? How do you do it? Yeah, some of it I get from clients, you know, those, those types of encounters. Others are from still my pre-existing mentors who I just emailed last week and said, hey, let's get together. Usually we, we talk baseball, but there is no baseball. Yeah. Um, and and let's, let's catch up a little bit and we'll talk, talk a little sports, but then we'll also talk a little bit about life and, mm-hmm. you know, other aspects. So. Because relationships take work, right? Nurturing, you still need to give some time there to develop. Well, and that's why, you know, I think a lot of people come to somebody like myself to process some of these things because truth be told, the nine to fives are done. And there's so many different individuals in regards of blue collar, white collar, where you're in all these fast paced careers or all these weird hours and you're getting access through email and all this stuff where, you know, that comprised of like, you've got kids in sports and it's time consuming to, to actually be able to nurture a really, you know, deep level relationship is difficult to do. Really difficult. So some individuals utilize, you know, coming to me, you know, for those purposes, Mm -hmm, just mm -hmm. for some objective guidance to talk about some deep issues that they don't have the ability to in their real lives, not because they don't Mm -hmm. want to, but because how busy lives are. Exactly. Or you don't know who you can trust or uh, maybe you moved and you don't have the same network and support group. Uh, I think that's a great thing about counselors is you guys are for hire. <laughs> yeah, I'm like a, like a counselor uh, from Godfather or a life coach or, you know, some, some of the kids I work through that are you know transitioning into college or trying to figure out, you know, different aspects of, you know, what to do next as far as their you know, sports goals or academic goals, you know, it's just trying to give them that support and guidance where either they're lacking that, you know, in their own lives or they just need that third party to give them some of that guidance. What's your outlook? My outlook is always hope. And that's why I share so much with clients about my personal life, because if I can't tell you things that I've been through and how I've made it on the other side, that, that is the installation of hope. So for me, that's why I always have hope. I always have faith because 
I know I've been through worse. And I always go and back. Even despite COVID, Absolutely. we've never seen COVID before. We have never been in this level of divisiveness with Black Lives Matter. And no one has ever lost this amount of job. And technology is going to take over and robots are going to rule us. No, but we have. How do you still have hope? Because it's, the, because it's will. It, it's, the, it's, it's will. There's individuals, there's those that do and those that don't. There's thoroughbreds, there's donkeys. And individuals that do have that mindset of keep going. We got to keep pushing through. You know, it might be hard. It might be difficult. But it's not over. It's not over. It is not over. And that's the conversations we need to have. We need to have these positive conversations or just real conversations. And I always go back to a scene in one of the Rocky films where he's talking to his older son and he's telling his son, you know what, you know, nobody hits you hard in life. Okay. It's going to knock you down. And then what can you do to persevere through it? You, you got to get up. You have to get up. You have to push. You have to fight. That's the will of a human. That's the will of man. You know, that, that's what we have to do. We have to push through. We have to persevere. We know there's a lot of good people out there. Yeah. We have them as friends. We have them in the communities. We have them in families. There's a lot of good people. The world isn't as bad as, as Twitter, MSNBC, Fox News, CNN. Yeah. Like, ignore all that. Mm-hmm. And if we ignore all those things, you know, we see... The, the, there's a lot of good, you know, that's out there. And so like when you, when you're asking that, it, yes, of course, hundred yeah. percent. Yes. People have lost the ability to think for themselves. They've relied mm-hmm. too heavily on what Facebook tells them or what a Twitter feed feeds to them or who they're following. And they don't put their phone down, put their device down and do some thinking for yourself. Don't Google search something. Don't ask Alexa. Don't ask Siri. Take some time to reflect. Say, take some time to meditate. Take some time to actually like read some literature yeah. off of like individuals that are, are good sources and then form your own opinion. Do not be a part of groupthink. Okay. That is toxic. That is dangerous. Whether you're far left or you're far right, because we don't grow as individuals. If we just hang around with everybody that just believes the same thing and has the same ideals and the same, you know, responses to everything. No, Mm -hmm. that's how we regress. If we want to persevere, if we want to grow, then that's exactly what we have to do. Mm -hmm. But that's where a lot of individuals, they don't have their own opinion. They don't develop that. Is that because we don't know yourself? Is this more of a, like, we have to get to know ourselves more and ask more Mm self-reflective? Well, this dives into a whole like different thing here, you know, which that's, like I said, that's even another conversation on on its own. But, but, but quickly, when we talk about consciousness, so developing a conscience, okay, where that comes from is daydreaming. Daydreaming. So when you were like, you get in trouble as a kid and you got sent to your room, you didn't have, you didn't have a TV or a Mm -mm. switch or an Xbox, nothing. You sat there, you sometimes cried, you sometimes hyperventilated, cried, hoped that somebody would come around. They never did. You had to self-reflect. Same thing would happen in schools. You get in trouble. Tony, put your head against the wall there and stand there for, for 30 minutes. And I'd hear, you know, people laughing and you'd feel uncomfortable. You'd feel embarrassed. That's a good thing. Okay. Okay. They weren't hitting me in school, but you made yourself, you got feel embarrassed because you sat with it long enough, right? Mm. Yeah, you didn't, you didn't stay at the wall for a minute, and then you were likely to not do that again, out of embarrassment, out of shame, out of guilt. With these kids today, they're programmed in, they're linked into screens, yeah, a lot. So they don't have that time to disconnect. They don't have that time to be self-aware to develop that level of consciousness and mindfulness. Mm. That's why there's a decrease in empathy and there's a decrease in mindfulness amongst the kids and amongst adolescents because they've become so self-absorbed, mm-hmm. you know, whether it's TikTok, Instagram, but the screen exposure, they have no downtime. There's no waiting anymore. No. You don't even have to wait for your food. You don't have to go get your food anymore. It comes to your door. Before we, we close, I want to ask you this because you get the privilege of, of truly understanding people on deep levels and you get to witness the spectrum of people, right? Like you're not looking at specific types of people or only working with men. You are working with different groups and ages. Are people generally good? Yes. 
is the world okay with the people that are currently living in it? Yes. Things need to be broken down in order for things to be built back up, mm-hmm. you know, in a, in a way that we're, we can evolve. And we can sometimes disagree with the way that things are broken down. Some good can come out of some bad things. And I think that's what we as a country, communities, you know, and families and friends are, are, are going to see through this, you know, in the end. I think there'll be that turning point where we recognize the sweet that comes out of the bitter and, you know, how that's going to make us better people. Well, thank you, Tony. I appreciate you. It's something I think is going to be a good opportunity to get some information out to uh, anybody that listens to it. And uh, that's the whole goal of it. So uh, I just appreciate you, you having me on. Appreciate you for coming on. Thank you for listening to Tuesdays with Andrea. There are hundreds of thousands of podcasts out there, and I appreciate you making the time to listen to mine. If you like this show and want to know more, check out TuesdaysWithAndrea.com or please leave a review on iTunes or drop a line in the YouTube comment section. Until next time, please stay kind in your mind, nice on the web, and stay hella hopeful in your heart.